So good to see you all. Uh, my name is Matt Nix, one of the elders here, in case you don't know. Uh, I'm going to pray for the message, and then uh, the other Matt, Matt Ortiz, is going to come up and share with us this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for your word uh, that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. God, I pray you would use your word uh, to speak to us this morning, God. I pray that we would be good listeners uh, and that your word would take uh, root in our heart and bear fruit in our lives. Be with Matt as he shares this morning. Uh, anoint him by your spirit. Guide him along by your spirit. Give him your words to speak. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Good morning, church. I, I thought I was Matt, and I thought you were the other Matt. I thought that's how this worked out. Actually, we have about five other Matts at this little, little church of, of ours. Um, well, my name is Matt, in case you didn't know. Um, and uh, I'm one, one of the pastors here. And uh, I'm uh, going to be sharing from the book of Exodus uh, this morning. In fact, back in February, we had to make a major modification to our teaching plan for the year for a bunch of, of different reasons. And um, I wanted to remind everyone here how the teaching usually un unfolds throughout the year. Now, here's the deal. In every single message, no matter what season we're in, we want to focus on uh, who is Jesus and what he has done and, and uh, what difference does, does it make. And in order for us to see Jesus in every single message, we kind of attack at three basic questions in every single message. And the messages and, and the questions are, who is God? How do I become a Christian? How do I grow as a Christian? And depending on what season we're in, we emphasize a different, a different question. In the fall, the emphasis is on who is God? And we look at an Old Testament book. At the end of the fall season, we, we set the, that Old Testament book down. We pick up a gospel in the winter, spring, and the emphasis is on how do I become a Christian? And then at the end of winter, spring season, when summer starts, uh, we put the gospel down. We pick up a, an, an epistle, a, a letter, and um, the emphasis is on how do I grow as a Christian. And this morning, we're finally getting back on track with our fall series, and we're picking up the Old Testament book of Exodus where we left off. And today, we come to the passage about the plagues. Y'all heard of the plagues? Yeah, eight chapters are devoted to them. So we're going to cover eight chapters this morning. So I hope you all have about, <laughs> we have one person that's very excited about that. Right. We're going to be here for three hours. Yeah. Well, I, I do wish we could read the, the whole thing because it's an amazing story and it's a crazy story. But because of time, we're just going to have to read a few sections. And, and before I read the text, um, let me put it in context. The context is this. Israel, God's people, are in slavery in Egypt. And they've been abused and oppressed by the power of Pharaoh for over 400 years. They cry out to God. God hears them. He sees their misery. And he is moved with compassion. And so God goes to Moses. And God appears to Moses in the burning bush. And God says to Moses, I am here to rescue my people. So I'm sending you, Moses, to go talk to Pharaoh. And I want you, Moses, to tell Pharaoh to let my people go. 
Well, Moses doesn't like this idea at first and tries to argue with God and realizes that's a losing battle, and so he gives up and decides to go. And now we pick up our story in Exodus chapter 7. And we're going to be starting in verse 14. And it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he goes out to the water. Wait on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that was changed into a snake. Then say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, Let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord had commanded. He raised the staff in the presence of Pharaoh and his officials and struck the water of the Nile, and all the water was changed to blood. The fish in the Nile died, and the river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same things by their secret arts, and Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Moving to Exodus chapter 10, beginning in verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky, so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky, and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to our God. Our livestock too must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God. And until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. And Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure, you do not, make sure you do not appear before me again. And the day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Now that is a crazy story. It's a crazy story. But we, we need to study these, these plagues. Why? Why do we need to study these these plagues? Well, there's a list of reasons, but let me just give you one. We study the plagues in order to know the Lord. All throughout this passage, God says, I am doing this that you may know the the Lord. And in chapter 6, it says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. Now, this right here is totally new. 
okay? God didn't reveal this to the patriarchs. God is, is making himself known as the Lord through the plagues. I don't know about you, but these plagues raise a few questions, don't they? I mean, all kinds of questions. But the most important question is this. What do these plagues teach us about the Lord? Here's the deal. There is absolutely nothing more important in in everyday life. There is nothing more important than we can possibly know than to know the Lord. There's nothing more important. You know what? As I've talked to countless people, I've become more and more convinced that, that the quality of our life is not determined by our circumstances. I don't know what it is that you're going through right now, but our quality of life is not determined by our circumstances. The quality of our life is determined by what we know about God in our circumstances. So, let's look at this. What do the plagues teach us about the Lord? First of all, if you're taking notes using the handout on your bulletin, the Lord is the rightful judge. Therefore, worship him. Now, now that might kind of frustrate you a little bit, the Lord as a a judge. But just hang in there. Don't check out. um, And and we'll, we'll work through this. And I think you'll see this in a whole new light. Now, when we read... um, this passage in Exodus, and we look at all the plagues, we see that there are 10 of them. And, and here are the plagues. We're just going to put them on the screen here. The Nile was turned to blood. And then there were frogs. And after the frogs, there were gnats. And after the gnats, there was sick cattle. And after the sick cattle, all kinds of flies. And after the flies, boils. And after the boils, a hailstorm. And after a hailstorm, locusts. And then after that, we have darkness. And then after that, the death of the firstborn. Now, maybe you've heard this story so many times that this doesn't seem uh, strange to you. But, but you look at the list of plagues right there. And, I mean, I, I, I have to ask, why in the world would God pick those as plagues, like a bunch of frogs? I mean, who thinks of that? Right? I mean, these seem totally random. But the Lord is not random, and these plagues were carefully chosen. Each plague, it turns out that each plague is a judgment against a different Egyptian god. For example, the Nile was considered a a god that they called Hopi. Yep, they called it Hopi. The Egyptians worshipped the Nile River god Hopi. And the plague of frogs was against a a, a god named Hect, a a frog-headed goddess. And and the hailstorm was a judgment against Nut, the Egyptian sky goddess. And, And darkness was a judgment against Ra, the Egyptian sun god. Well, that's interesting, Matt, but what in the world does that have to do with us today? Everything. Absolutely everything. It has everything to do with you and me. Listen, it has everything to do with you and me, especially in our time and in our city today. Look, verse 1, Moses says to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. 
let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You know what's interesting? What's interesting to me is what Pharaoh doesn't say. Pharaoh doesn't say, you know what? There's no God. There's no God at all. I don't need to obey anybody. He doesn't say that. So apparently Pharaoh's not an atheist. He doesn't reject the existence of God. And you know what else he doesn't say? He doesn't say, you know what? We, we really can't know that God exists or not. So he's not agnostic either. So then what is Pharaoh? Well, he's what's known as a pluralist. And what he's saying is this. Okay, you call your God Yahweh, you call him uh, Lord, that's cool. I have my own gods. You obey your God, I'll obey mine. Now here's, here's, here's what I've noticed, okay? I think that's exactly what most people in our city believe, Right? Not, not very many people. I mean, there are some, some people who stand out, but uh, the more people you talk to, the more you realize that, that not very many people reject the existence of God. And most don't even say you can't really know for sure if there's a God or not. But here's what most people do say. Most people say, you have your God and I have mine. You obey yours and I'll obey mine. Just don't say that your God is better than mine. And that's what Pharaoh says right here. But the plagues tell us that Pharaoh is wrong. See, here's, here's the thing about the plagues. The plagues are not just a judgment against Egypt. The plagues are the Lord's judgment on all other so-called gods. In chapter 9, God says, I am doing this so that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. So what we learn here is that the plagues are the Lord's argument against pluralism. Whew. I am so glad we're not a bunch of pluralists like all those pluralistic pluralists. <laughs> that would be horrible. At this point, it is time to check the plank in our own eye. Let me explain. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to just spin the truth? Have you noticed that? It's super easy to, to just spin the truth and, and maybe shed a, a different light on something so it appears a little bit differently. Like, when we don't love others as Jesus commands, we have really good reasons. Or when self-proclaimed Christians don't value consistently worshiping with their church family, it sounds good when we say it's because we're putting our family first. Or when we promise to do something and then we don't follow through and we're, we're masters at coming up with a really good excuse. Or, or when we mess up, we can, we can explain it so it doesn't make us look as bad as we would have. We call that spin. You know what the Bible calls it? Lying. The Bible calls it lying. And that's one of the big ten. I mean, we absolutely know better, but we do it anyway. 
So why? Why do we lie? The reason we lie is because we're all a bunch of functional pluralists. That's why. Especially me. Let me explain. I profess. I profess that the God of the Bible is the one and only true God, but I live as if he were just one of many gods. I lie because I want to seem like I'm a better person than I really am. So why do I do that? It's because I easily worship the respect God, and I easily worship the comfort God. And these gods tell me, if you live life well, Matt, then people will respect you and you'll be happy. Then you will know that you're a person of significance and that you're living the good life. The plagues tell me that I'm wrong. Therefore, we can come to the conclusion when we see God on display here that our gods that we worship like respect or comfort, they are weak and they can't deliver and they let us down and they rob us and they enslave us. They destroy us. The first truth is that the Lord is the rightful judge. Therefore, worship him and him alone. Second, the plagues teach us that the Lord is a powerful judge. Therefore, obey him. Did, did, you, did you notice something kind of weird about the plagues here? I mean, think about it. The, the plagues are not nearly as spectacular as they could have been. I mean, this is God of the un- who created the heavens and the earth, created the whole universe, holds it all together. In light of that, these plagues aren't that spectacular, are they? I mean, sure, the miracles, God's direct intervention, but they're kind of ordinary. There's something kind of natural about these plagues. I mean, that's one of the reasons that takes Pharaoh so long to get it, because he's seen this kind of stuff before. And you can almost, you can almost hear Pharaoh, Pharaoh thinking how, how all these plagues happened. You know, if, if these are miracles, what kind of mediocre miracles are these? So Moses strikes the Nile River with his staff, and, and the river turns to blood. I mean, that's pretty cool, kind of impressive, I guess. But the other so-called plagues just seem to be a natural result of the first. I mean, the fish die because of the bloody water, and they can't jump out like the frogs, and and that's why the frogs are everywhere. And and when the frogs all died, they attracted the gnats, and since dead frogs can't eat flies, the flies multiply like crazy, and then the flies carry disease and bite the cows, and that's why they got sick and started dying, and then the disease spreads, and that's why there's an outbreak of boils. Makes sense. You know, you you go through the the plagues as they unfold, and it seems like God's kind of turning up the heat a little bit, getting more and more more intense, right? But the ninth plague is is darkness. And, And maybe that's creepy at first, but darkness? Why is that the next to the last plague if God were ramping things up. I mean, you'd think that it would be something much more horrible. I mean, I'm sure it's kind of scary and the nightlights don't work. 
for three days. You can't see anybody else. But it could have been way worse. Why is this the next to the last plague? Why does God do it this way? Well, think about it. If God, if God simply wanted to get his people out of Egypt, why didn't God just go for the jugular? I mean, seriously, why not hit the members of Pharaoh's court with a, a bolt of lightning and make their faces melt off like in the, the no, uh, yeah, that movie, and eyeballs are rolling out and everything, and it's really impressive, and they all, like, turn into a pile of ash. I mean, that would have been impressive. That would have been cool. And then God could have said, how do you like me now, Pharaoh? You're next unless you let my people go. Like right now, right now. That would be faster. And that's what I would do. I don't know. So why does God do it this way? Well, he's teaching us. And this is what blew my mind. Um, (laughs) Scholars make the observation that the plagues are the reversal of creation. Okay? Exodus 7.10 is a reversal of Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 verse 2, it says that before God created, the earth was formless and empty. Chaos ruled. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. Darkness, the ninth plague. And then God, in creation, God filled the universe with light, filled the sea with fish, filled the earth with, with trees and, and plants and, and animals and birds and people. And the creation functioned in, in perfect harmony. Things multiplied and, and were fruitful. And everything was at peace with everything else. The plagues give us a picture of what naturally happens if God is not ruling over our lives and creation. Having a God worthy of our obedience makes all of the difference in the world. And here we see how destructive disobedience really is. Things just break down. Instead of water teeming with life, the fish and the frogs die. And that leads to a further breakdown. And and animals and plants are totally destroyed. The creation order has been turned upside down. Creation is fighting against itself. People are dying. And darkness once again covers the deep. Disobedience causes the very structure of creation to break down. It leads to disintegration. It, it, it leads to death. It, it leads to decay. And the power of God is seen in the ordinariness of the plagues. It reminds us that God is creator. And as creator, he has built justice into the very DNA of creation. But listen, okay? Listen, this is important. When we disobey the Lord, it is not as if God says, ha, 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 I saw that. Now take this. Pow! So many people think that's who God is when they think that God is a God of justice or a just, a just God. 
what we see is God's justice is built right into the substance of life so that disobedience naturally causes things to break down and ultimately our life returns to darkness and chaos and death. And I'm telling you, I mean, if, if you're not tracking with me so far, track with me now. Because we've all experienced this, haven't we? I mean, just take two of the, the, the two great commandments in the Bible, which is love, love the Lord your God above all else, love your neighbor as yourself. Let's take the first one. Love God above all else. As soon as we make something else uh, other than God the center of our lives, that's when we begin to experience meltdown. If we make our work or, or our family or romance or comfort, all good things, right? But when we make them the center of our lives instead of God, we begin to experience breakdown. We become driven to get it. And we get angry if somebody gets in our way. And we get worried if we feel like we're not going to uh, attain it. Uh, we get, we get uh, uh, just depressed when it feels like it's slipping through our, our fingers and, and then we get totally crushed when it does slip through our fingers. And if we actually do get it, we're empty. Just totally empty. The first pl plague leads to the second plague, which leads to the third plague, and so on. Drivenness and anger and worry and depression create all sorts of health problems and your relationships begin to break down and pretty soon darkness is everywhere. You've seen this. You've experienced this. Take the second uh, great commandment, to, to love your neighbor as, as yourself. I mean, there's so many different ways uh, we can look at it. Let me just throw a couple out there. Um, loving your neighbor is a joyful experience. It is. But when you're just living for yourself, it's not. In fact, you won't even view that as joyful. If you don't view loving your neighbor as, as, as joyful, you could pretty much be convinced and be sure of the fact that you're just living for yourself. All right? That's just a free diagnosis right there. And when you live for yourself, we set into motion the process of disintegration. Like on a larger scale, if you're not generous with what God has given you, then money enslaves you. The poor are not cared for. Resentment develops between those who have and those who don't. Oppression and poverty and crime spread and neighborhoods become unsafe. I mean, that's just how things progress. Or if you don't forgive someone who wrongs you, a series of plagues are set in motion. You become bitter and you become cynical. And that leads to fear and prejudice and discrimination. It leads to violence, death, and decay. I mean, this is heavy stuff. That's how this plays out. The third truth we learn is that the Lord is a merciful judge. Therefore, trust him. You may, have not, you may not have noticed this at all at this point. And you may be shocked to hear me say that this is absolutely jam-packed with boatloads of mercy. And I'll show you. The truth is, as we look at this passage, is that the, purposes of, the purpose of the plague is to bring salvation. 
He brings the plagues to set his people free from slavery and, and oppression. And they've been oppressed and abused, so God comes to save them. So judgment is not an end in itself. Judgment is for the purpose of salvation. He's there to, to save his people in mercy. But it's more than that. God also shows mercy to the Egyptians. Most of the plagues are more of a, a nuisance than a serious threat. I mean, it actually seems like God's kind of pulling his punches here. In fact, I mean, you look at the eighth plague when God announces the eighth plague, the hailstorm. He warns the Egyptians and tells them to get all of their livestock and, and people inside so that no one is hurt. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to destroy the Egyptians. He wants to save the Egyptians. God wants the Egyptians to know that he is the Lord so that they will trust him and be saved. And you know what? It's even more than that. The Lord is doing this to save the whole world. <laughs> In chapter 9, the Lord says, I am doing this, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. God knew that the plagues would be recorded in a book so that the story of the plagues would be read throughout history and all throughout the world. Why? So that the whole world might know the Lord and trust him and be saved. And guess what? There's even more mercy on top of that. The plagues, the plagues point us to another time when the Lord heard our cry and he came down to rescue us. And this time, he did not send Moses. He did not send Samson. He did not send King David. This time, the Lord himself shows up. And he didn't show up in power. He showed up, the Lord showed up in weakness. The Lord shows up as a baby. He made himself helpless. He was born in a barn, in a feed bin, to a family so poor, the only offering they could bring to the dedication is a couple of pigeons. Why did he come in weakness? Why did the Lord Almighty come to us in weakness? He came to us in weakness because he came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. He came not to bring the plagues, but to take the plagues upon himself. Do you know what was happening when Jesus was hanging on, on the cross? Matthew tells us in his gospel, it says, From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all of the land. What's that mean? It means that the plagues were being poured out on Jesus, and this time, God didn't pull any punches. And Matthew goes on to say, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, the Lord took the plagues upon himself. On the cross, the Creator, the Creator began to experience disintegration. Why? 
Well, I mean, you know, to give us an example of sacrificial, self-sacrificing love, right? No, it's got to be so much more than that. It's got to be so much, it is an example, but it's got to be so much more than, ex- than an example. If it was just an example, if God did this just as an example, he'd be a sadistic, masochistic show-off, and I don't want anything to do with a God like that. But that's not why he did it. He did it because it was the only way the Lord could free us and deliver us from slavery. Slavery to our real oppressors, delivering us from the slavery of evil, the slavery of death, the slavery of an, an eternal judgment, the oppression of it all. Jesus was forsaken so that we never would be. On the cross, the judge took our judgment. This is your deliverance. This is your liberation from slavery. This is the merciful judge. Therefore, trust him. So maybe you're wondering, I mean, well, how how can I know if I have trusted him? What's what's the the, the fruit that gets produced in 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 my life. What's the practical stuff here? If you noticed, I did not extract the self-help seminar from the book on the plagues. Okay? The point of the, the story of the plagues is not just to improve your life with a few, you know, practical tips and throwing Bible verses in here and, and there and, and throwing a, 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 few, a few funny stories to make this point stick or, 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 or whatever. The whole point is to focus on who Jesus is and what he has done. To focus on the cross, that the, the message of the scriptures from the beginning, Genesis, all the way to the end, Revelation, everything in between is all about who Jesus is and what he has done and the victory that his people have in him. That God is merciful and he's always in the process of drawing his people unto himself. So much bigger than just, here are a few things that will make your week a little easier easier. And here's a few Bible verses sprinkled in. So when we focus on that, we're told that it produces fruit in our lives. What happens? What is the power of the gospel, not just to save us from slavery, but to change us into becoming more like Christ? What happens? Well, here's the power of the gospel, and here's what it looks like. When we look to the cross and trust the the merciful judge, we will worship and obey the Lord, not out of fear, but out of delight and with a sense of joy and appreciation because the cross shows us that Jesus already took our punishment. And when we look to the cross, we will trust him uh, to to, uh, take the, the steps of faith to do great things through our weakness. And then use our suffering for his glory and our good. Because the cross shows us that the worst event in history was the best and most powerful event in history. And then also we will treat people with whom we disagree with respect and kindness. Even people from a different political party. Even that jerk that lives across the street. Even that person that just disrespects you at work. 
We'll treat people with whom we disagree with respect and kindness in return because the cross shows us that it's all of grace. We don't deserve anything at all. And yet look at the grace that God has given to us. Grace upon grace upon grace. How can we not be gracious to others when we were yet still his enemies, he was gracious to us? And we will love the poor and not be intimidated by the powerful because the cross shows us how spiritually bankrupt we were and how we needed a poor man to die for us. And now we are accepted and loved by God Almighty. And we will work for justice and show mercy to the weak, to the oppressed. Because the cross shows us that we needed it too. And it was a gift to us. And last thing I'll mention is we'll trust him in the darkness. We'll trust him in the darkness. I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe you're right in the middle of the darkness right now. Maybe you blew it or somebody else blew it and sinned against you and just messed up your life. And you're just in the darkness. What's the cross and, and, and the merciful judge say about that? Suck it up. Is that what he says? Suck it up. Here's a Bible verse. I'll go and do it. That's, there's no hope in that. God says... He doesn't say, suck it up. He says, I understand. In fact, I hate the darkness and what you're going through more than you do. So much that I was willing to take your sin upon myself, suffer and die, bring on an end to the darkness. So trust him this morning. This is the power of the cross. There is nothing more important in all of life than knowing the Lord. Nothing more important in all of life. There's nothing more relevant. There's nothing more practical in everyday life. Nothing has a a greater impact on, on the direction and the quality of your life than knowing the Lord. Your your peace and your joy in life have very little to do with your circumstances. They have everything to do with knowing the Lord. So let me ask you this morning do you know the Lord? Do you know him? If you know the Lord as the rightful judge, you will worship him and him alone. If you know the Lord as the powerful judge, you will obey him, not out of fear, but with delight. If you know the Lord as a merciful judge, you will trust him in all things, even in the darkness. Amen? Would you um, bow your heads with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so, so merciful to us. God, we thank you that you are a just judge because it means that you're turning everything that's wrong in the world and making it right, making it beautiful, advancing peace through the advancement of your kingdom to to eliminate suffering and death and decay. And if you were not a just judge, there would be no righting of the wrongs. There would be no freedom, deliverance from oppression, slavery. 
judge and internal judgment. So we thank you for being a just judge by sending Jesus. And as a just judge, Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. And you tell us that if we confess our sin, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. God, I pray, Lord, that we, have a, that we would have a fuller uh, understanding of, of, of who you are and that it would radically change the way we view the world and live in it. God, I pray that you would stir up within us a desire to glorify you, to live for you, to love you above all else, and to love others as ourselves. God, I pray that, that your grace would lead us to, to be open about living for how, all the different ways that we live for ourselves. We thank you that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. So this morning we pray that you would enable us to, to freely and, and confidently, without any hesitation, without holding back, to confess our, our sin to you. And God, if we just have uh, blank minds and, and we're sitting here thinking, what sin? I don't have any sin. God, I pray that you would shine a light on our hearts to give us a gracious diagnosis to help us to, to see the sin in our life that is, that is robbing us of true life in you. God, forgive us for not just the ways we disobey you, but the way we obey you for selfish reasons. To look better or to look down on others. God, I pray that you forgive us for our self-righteousness. God, I pray that if there's anybody here that has not put their faith and trust in you this, this morning, that, that you would deliver them, that you would grant them uh, freedom for the things that are um, sucking the life out of them. Help them to see that there is life in you as our king that delivers us and sets us free. We pray these things in your name.